This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Of course, we heard uh, just about the tragic story of uh, Jasmine Hanif. She was a 10-year-old girl killed in a crash on her family's water down street. Uh, they'd like to see improved safety uh, measures given the community's growing population. Uh, Shaquille Hanif uh, says he would like to see radar speed bumps, signs, and other measures uh, to make drivers avoid Evans Road. Uh, of course, Waterdown, one of those uh, communities outside of Hamilton, uh, well, obviously within the borders, but uh, uh, outside the city proper, and uh, but is growing leaps and bounds. And lots who have lived in Waterdown for years have said that uh, infrastructure, everything else just does not seem to be keeping up with the growth that we are seeing in that area. Uh, we've tried to uh, touch out to Councillor Partridge on this, and uh, unfortunately she was not available today. Uh, let's bring in Larry Deani, former mayor of Hamilton, and he is with us now. Hello, Larry. How are you today? I am well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, Larry, how do we, you know, when you get a, a city like Hamilton and, you know, in an area like southern Ontario and, and you get the, a city that's going through the growth uh, that Hamilton is certainly going through and surrounding areas, uh, certainly the greater Hamilton area. How do you control this? How do you manage it? How do you, how do you make sure things like this don't happen? Well, the, um, the city of Hamilton actually uh, has a, um, a policy, um, a growth management policy that, um, that uh, looks at uh, how the city will grow and what sorts of um, infrastructure uh, improvements need to be made in order for the city to grow appropriately. It used to be growth, uh, the, the, the policy was called GRIDS, uh, and it's a growth-related uh, uh, management plan. Um, so, so, you know, there is thinking that's going on. Uh, there is thinking that's going on in the city staff to allow for some planning to occur. Part of the problem, though, is that what we've witnessed over the last little while is that the growth um, has overtaken uh, the amount of dollars and the uh, and really the wherewithal to keep up with all of it all over the place, and that's created the pressures we're seeing today. So moving forward, how do you address these issues and how, how difficult is it to implement these quickly? Uh, well, it's, it's difficult to implement them quickly. Um, there's no question about that. But by the same token, uh, you've got to address the issues that are, that are most pressing. So it's like a triage, right, Scott, uh, where you see where the problem areas are and you pour resources into those areas. Do you get it always right? And especially when tragedies such as the one that occurred in Waterdown uh, occur, uh, it's never enough and it's never quick enough, especially when a 10-year-old child loses her life that was totally preventable. But by the same token, what I'm hearing from the counselor, at least what I'm reading from the counselor, is that uh, there's going to be a short-term response to that and there's going to be a longer-term fix uh, in Waterdown. And by the way, that, that part of the city has just grown exponentially. I know that uh, when I was involved in it, you know, I've been gone for 10 years now, we were looking at a perimeter road, we are looking at a parkside expansion, and I think, uh, uh, and, and that's very close to where this accident occurred, by the way, uh, and I, I think uh, all of those approvals have been 
uh, put in place and the financing is in place, just a question of getting it done now. So does this accident shine a light on a bigger issue in Waterdown? Well, so if you look at that whole area, Waterdown, Burlington, North Burlington, uh, even South Burlington, quite frankly, uh, the gridlock is very, very prevalent. Uh, you, you can't get from point A to point B without really taking a long time if you're going through Burlington. And you might know that very well. You traverse probably part of that area uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, so, so it's just a, a, a factor of life. Uh, but it's not just, it's just not just there. Uh, it's in other parts of the municipality as well. And, uh, and it does shine a light to the need to plan appropriately, uh, to resource, um, appropriately and, um, and, uh, to keep your fingers crossed that tragedies such as that, uh, occurred in Waterdown, uh, don't occur, uh, too often or at all. Why is the congestion happening there, do you think? Is it just geographics, how, how the current road system is set up? And, and you know, I mean, you talk about the growth of that area. Actually, my sister lives in Waterdown, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's exploded over the last uh, several right. years. It, it has. It and, has. and Hamilton, uh, very much the same way. Is it just a matter of time, Larry, before Hamilton experiencing the same sort of gridlock you're talking about? I mean, again, well, I, you know, I, I drove from one end of Hamilton uh, uh, right across Maine the other day, and it's still relatively easy to do. It is. Um, and, and it's, you know, that revives the whole LRT debate in, in terms of, uh, you know, Maine and, and, and King as well, and what congestion may occur. A part of the answer is public, good public transit, by the way. Um, but, but uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, the... The, the, the fact of the matter is that, that uh, uh, we've got a lot of cars on the road. People are always in a rush, uh, and people are courteous. I mean, part of the story in, in this tragedy that occurred um, in Waterdown is personal behavior of drivers who are um, not as attentive as they need to be uh, and, and sometimes uh, are heavy-footed as well. They step on that gas and, and uh, you know, the devil takes the hindmost. Well, sometimes it works out okay, but often, um, or, or too many times, there are tragedies, and this was one example of that. But, but the other problem is that for far too long, uh, planning and infrastructure development have been two isolated activities uh, on the part of municipalities, where you plan first and then you worry about the uh, the uh, infrastructure, road network, public uh, transportation network later. And we had a perfect example of that here in Hamilton with the Red Hill Expressway, uh, where all sorts of planning approvals had been given to the Bimbrook area and the East Mountain, uh, the expansions there, without necessarily worrying about how people and uh, businesses were going to transport people and goods back and forth to those areas. And so we had to put in uh, this, this roadway that would accommodate, <clears throat> excuse me, that would accommodate some of that. Whereas today the philosophy is that planning and infrastructure need to move at the same speed so that when you're planning a development, you have to think of the road networks. Uh, otherwise, you say no. If you just can't accommodate the growth 
in terms of public transit or road networks, uh, then you can't say yes to those to those planning approvals that you may wish to have until you get everything done together. And that's what the, the, the brilliance of the, or at least the, the forward thinking of the grids network that, uh, that the city of Hamilton put in place 10 years ago was exactly that, where they looked at where is the, where is the growth going to occur and how are we going to make sure that it works for the residents there, for the businesses there, for the traffic that needs to go to those areas and the traffic that, that flows through those areas as well. So let me ask the you this, Larry. Why, yeah. why, is, why is it that the, the, the area of Waterdown seems to be having the issues that it has? And they've, you know, we've certainly seen them over the last five years or so really uh, uh, expand and grow outward. So uh, where was the planning there? How come, well, how come they good, got good, caught there? Well, good question, because the planning was done 30 years ago, uh, whereas the... Uh, the uh, or 20 or 30 years ago, perhaps, uh, whereas the uh, when when they were using the old paradigm, where you plan, you give approvals first, and you worry about the infrastructure later, uh, whereas uh, uh, the development has occurred within the last 15 years, and so so people got approvals to build 30 years ago. They didn't worry about the roads, and then when they started building 15 years ago, they they obviously had to find ways of getting people and goods. Uh, across those areas, and now you're finding that congestion. And so um, going forward, hopefully it won't happen again. The province has actually put in place some guarantees uh, that demand that sort of uh, coordinated planning around uh, development as well as infrastructure, uh, and municipalities have woken up to that as well. Are we caught. There's a transition going on, and we're caught right now. Uh, obviously, uh, Hamilton going through its own explosion, its own renaissance. Uh, people are, I guess, guesstimating at this time when eventually the city will hit one million people. Some are saying that it will happen sooner than we think. Are we ready for what's going to happen here in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, you know, the projections for the next 25 years that I've seen, now I haven't seen the latest ones, uh, but the projections are around the 800,000 people mark and not the 1 million people mark. But but we're heading there. We're certainly heading there. And and right now, that, that's why the city of Hamilton is sort of planning uh, the next phase of growth. There's going to have to be growth to accommodate those people, but they're looking at not only uh, where people will live, they're looking at where businesses will develop to uh, accommodate jobs for those people, and then the infrastructure uh, that's required to make sure that it works, as well as, quite frankly, the money that's needed to bring everything uh, in line. So uh, when you look at something that has happened, such as the tragedy in Waterdown, um, and, and this is a difficult question to ask, but is this just one of those terrible, tragic things that happen? Or is this one of those things that, you know, uh, could have been avoided? You know, you know what, whenever, whenever an innocent life is lost, you, can't, you can never uh, be a, a cavalier or, or dismissive of that. Uh, it's just uh, uh, too great of a tragedy to occur. And, and I feel for Councillor Partridge, actually, because... Um, she is sort of uh, under the gun um, and I'm sure feels very badly as, as to what happened. I feel very badly, obviously, for the family and the victim 
uh, but certainly in terms of a policymaker, Council Partridge uh, must be feeling some heat. And I can relate to that because we had a, a similar incident when I was a councillor in the, amalga- the newly amalgamated city on Grays Road in Stony Creek. There was a child uh, that was, uh, that, that was um, uh, injured, not fatally, but, but very, very badly injured. In fact, it was in the news again recently because the crossing guard had left a few minutes early. You might remember reading the story mm. in the paper, uh, Scott. Scott uh, the crossing guard left a few minutes early. Uh, this child uh, crossed and was struck by a car and changed that child's life forever because of the mm. very severe injuries. And so I was asked, and rightly so, um, you know, why, why isn't there uh, a stoplight to accommodate um, uh, pedestrians uh, even when crossing guards may not be there because obviously pedestrians and kids cross even on weekends when schools are not open. The irony in that case was that we had been working on putting a stoplight there, but it, it, it didn't come soon enough to stop that particular tragedy from occurring. So policy sometimes lags uh, and accidents and terrible tragedies will occur. We can never be dismissive of them, of course, but we can only do what we can do. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor of Hamilton, discussing growth in the city, uh, especially that in the Waterdown area. Larry, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. See you later. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Diamond. Haven't talked to him in a while. Principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto. A, he is a conservative political pundit. Uh, just announced that, uh, I guess, testing the waters, Joe Biden. Now, he was supposed to run for the Democrats and then step down to let Hillary run. You have to wonder what he's thinking about that decision now. Uh, let's talk to Michael about that and other Trump things. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Trump has the world uh, waiting on the edge of their seat till 3 o'clock this afternoon and to whether he decides to uh, hang on to the Paris uh, Climate Accord or what. What are your thoughts on all of this? I think it will be very anticlimactic. I don't think it takes a weatherman to know that Donald Trump isn't particularly concerned about weather-related issues, and I don't see him sticking with uh, Paris, and frankly, uh, I'm not going to lose any sleep over that, although I'm sure the faculty lounges will be erupting tomorrow. (laughs) So uh, what does that mean for business in Canada? that the Prime Minister better uh, follow suit and realize that he cannot go ahead with, uh, with, with these uh, you know, uh, fundamental changes to our economic system, uh, carbon tax, the other restrictions, uh, the Paris Accord, because it will make Canadian business so much less competitive. He cannot do that to us. There are other ways, if this is a concern, to address it, but uh, making Canadian businesses less attractive. You add a carbon tax to a $15 minimum wage to Ontario High Hydro prices, all of a sudden, how can anyone afford to employ someone in this country? Uh, should uh, he address this or uh, should he address this or just deny it? Uh, he, he, you know, politically speaking, he shouldn't address it. He should let the president do what the president's going to do and uh, slowly walk back from uh, the edge of this uh, promise that he's ramming through and shoving down the throats of promises. And God love uh, Saskatchewan Premier uh, uh, Brad Wall for fighting the good fight for the entire country. Uh, he's definitely... Uh, the, uh, the, the the forefront of this, and I think with the Conservatives having a new leader in Andrew Scheer, we'll see some real heat held to the Prime Minister's feet on this. So are the Conservatives climate, den- uh, climate change deniers? 
uh, the, the climate change deniers. I mean, you know, I'm not going to speak for uh, for a whole political party. There's, you know, we saw this weekend uh, a conservative leadership uh, election where Michael Chong did quite well, and he was running in support of a carbon tax, uh, thinking that. Uh, the climate, uh, the climate change is an issue does not require one to support a tax to make jobs less competitive. They don't have to go hand in hand. You, you, you don't have to, uh, think that the science is unanimous, uh, and support this, but you also, it doesn't mean they don't go hand in hand. You don't have to say one equals the other. So, uh, in other words, uh, the, the, you, you, you would, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, <laughs> there's other ways to do this more economically. Well, let, let's, Start uh, from a vantage point that knowing the most important thing for this country is ensuring that our citizens are employed. Uh, so uh, you think that at three o'clock this afternoon he's just going to say we're out? Yeah, I think it's good. Exactly, it's going to be very anticlimactic. I'm sure he'll say it. Uh, maybe he'll make up a new word or something, or uh, you know, do tell someone they're fired and to get out. But it, it might be more amusing than that. But yes, I wouldn't expect anything else from from this president. He's a he is not an internationalist. These uh, accords signed at fancy conferences where people use a lot of jet fuel to get to, well, they're worried about carbon emissions, is not something he's going to want to stick with. How can uh, he claim and and still say this is all? a hoax when we see what's going on in China and and hear now that over the last couple of years they're reducing their coal that they're that they're uh, trying they're, they're getting so much pressure from the citizens that they've got to do something now and and they are in on this I mean they they believe that they have to move towards more renewables hey and that's the way it should happen where citizens are forcing uh, forcing change like governments are taxing to create changes that are gonna mean people are, are, are out of jobs so uh, you know also facts have never really factored into a Donald Trump announcement before so I don't think we should expect it to start <laughs> to today so how do you think the rest of the world's gonna react when he makes this announcement, you thinking that uh, he's just going to pull out? Oh, they're going to be uh, they're going to be up in arms. Everyone's going to be angry, and he's not going to care because politically speaking, if Angela Merkel and uh, Macron and, and and the world leaders are obsessed with Donald upset with Donald Trump, he's doing the right thing at home by you know as he'll say, making America great again and making America independent again. Is it wrong for him to uh, assume that the coal industry is going to be revitalized in, in America? We were just talking to uh, a senior federal, fe- uh, fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation that said that, uh, you know, even the electrical companies and such, everybody's pulling out of this. Nobody wants anything to do with it anymore. Yeah, the voters in West Virginia might feel differently, though. So I think that's where, you know, if you look why the Democrats, West Virginia used to be uh, one of the most solidly blue Democratic states, and uh, that's that's changed, and now they're, uh, they have a Democrat in the Senate. He'll be the last Democrat elected there. So the Republicans, I mean, there is some local voting issues uh, for them at this, and then there's just what they think makes sense economically and from a uh, global perspective. But what will happen when all of these people realize that the coal industry can't be revitalized the way he says it can be? Uh, he probably uh, will be after if he's to be reelected. It won't be his problem anymore. Uh, would be one thing. I mean, often you know when politicians talk about things that far off in the future, the consequences are things that politically speaking they're not going to have to deal with. Uh, so if if the Republican Party were to, you know, one one thing that was a big problem, you know, when John Kerry was running for president and his uh, running mate with John Edwards has since been that uh, we can now refer to as the former disgraced Senator John Edwards uh, talked about how when John Kerry's elected president, uh, the, t- the, the, the the tide is going to start to uh, recede and the ocean levels will go back and the climate will uh, will stop being so unpredictable. So when politicians, I mean, they, they all got to be careful about making these ridiculous promises. 
promises that are so uh, impossible to actually promise because it will only hurt their parties politically. So perhaps that's the road the Republicans are going down in the coal states, uh, but it will be a long time until there's political consequence. Uh, surprised that Joe Biden has announced that uh, he's testing the waters to run. It's Well, mind you, it certainly appears that, that Donald Trump is in full-fledged campaign mode. I don't think he's ever gotten out of it. Uh, so isn't this a little early? I mean, geez, we're just over the 100-day mark. So the thing with Joe Biden is, uh, well, and one, you, you said that he got out of the race in favor of Hillary Clinton or so she could run. And that's not, I, I don't think that's actually accurate. I think he got out of the race, unfortunately, and it's devastating because his son died at a very bad right. time and he had to really step in there. Had Joe Biden, had Bo Biden not passed away, which was tragic and too early and people from across the political spectrum, if they don't agree with that, have absolutely no decency. Uh, had Joe Biden been the Democratic candidate, we wouldn't uh, be wondering what Donald Trump would be announcing on the Rose Garden at three o'clock because Joe Biden would, with out of doubt, be president. He offered the Democrats the uh, the experience of Hillary Clinton, and he offered uh, also a uh, sort of an edge like Donald Trump, just a common touch that folks would have been able to get behind. So Joe Biden would be a absolutely fantastic candidate for president. Now, do I think it's too early? I mean, look, Joe Biden was a guy who was elected uh, to the United States Senate at the age of 29, uh, and he served there continuously until his election as vice president. Um, you have to be 30 to be sworn into uh, the United States Senate. So when you're elected at 29, it shows that you have a lot of chutzpah. And I think grit is really what sums up Joe Biden. This is a guy who uh, was elected when he was too young. His wife and daughter were killed in a terrible car accident mm. between uh, his election and his swearing in. He he, he, he was considering giving up, and he, he decided to fight through it. He's fought every step of the way in his life. He was, he was uh, almost expelled from law school for plagiarism. He uh, had to drop out of the race for president uh, in 1980 because of plagiarism. He suffered a terrible aneurysm. He lost his first wife. He lost uh, two children, which is, you know, uh, two too many, yeah. without a doubt. And this is a guy who's always fought back, and he's never given up. So I don't think we'll ever see the end of Joe Biden. And uh, frankly, I would certainly not count him out, even though he will be uh, the oldest and major party nominee if he is to uh, run and win. Um, don't count him out, because, you know, this is a guy whose mother only recently passed away. He has some good genes. Uh, he he seems, you know, he's definitely a youngish guy. He's very broy, and he's just, uh, you know, politically, I don't agree with him on anything, but he's insufferably likable. You can't dislike mm. Joe Biden. Wow. Uh, so you, you're convinced he would have won the nomination over Hillary had he stayed uh, in the race? Absolutely. You know, look, look how well Bernie did, and look at the interference from the yeah, Democratic National Committee. It would have been very hard for them to interfere against. Uh, Bernie wasn't actually even a member of the party, so interfering against him wasn't all that problematic. But interviewing in one of the longest-serving senators, the incumbent vice president, and a longtime Democrat would have been very hard. So Bernie did well, but there were certainly folks who had a lot of questions about him. One, can he actually win? Let's go with the winner, who's going to obviously be Hillary. Is he actually a Democrat? Well, we better go with Hillary. So I think Biden would have been able to capitalize on that dissatisfaction with uh, the Clinton establishment while, uh, while, while not losing out the votes that Bernie didn't get of people who were just a little concerned about his commitment to the party and his ability to win an election. It's kind of funny. Age doesn't seem to matter much in the United States, where it seems to matter here in Canada. Why do you think that is? Or maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? You know, it... it 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 used to people used to you know talk about uh, age and then all of a sudden Bill Clinton beat two war heroes who served in the uh, you know the the young little baby boomer beat two uh, two war heroes and now we're going the opposite way where you know we're having all these candidates for uh, 
presidents who really uh, you might 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 expect to see in Florida on Illinois somewhere because hmm. why do they want to continue working? All these people have had impressive careers. It's time for them to move on. But it, it certainly politically has not hurt any of them. I mean, uh, Joe Biden was not going to lose a single vote because of his age had he run against Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, who not only is old, but certainly looks looks old, didn't lose a single vote. And he was one of the most appealing candidates ever, it seems, to uh, young and unlikely voters. So really, I think it is a good point you make that uh, age matters less. So we shouldn't be concerned that Biden will be, you know, a bit older than Trump because he'll be running against the guy who's pretty old also. Uh, obviously, Trump got in. People were uh, were ticked off with the status quo, anything but the status quo, so to speak. Would it be better for both the Republicans and the Democrats to go somebody to go with somebody outside the loop instead of the same old people, same families, same this, same that? Is it time for fresh faces? Even you know to the point where Hillary's still squawking about things. It's like, is it, is it better for the party if she just moves on? Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, for for the party, the, the Clintons have got to move on. They're they're too tarnished. Uh, that said, I think you know, in two thousand and uh, the, the two thousand and twenty, the next presidential election, there might be a little bit of dissatisfaction with the outsider route. So Biden, who certainly isn't disliked for being establishment, even though he should be because he was in Washington for so long. Um, won't be as toxic. And the interesting thing with Biden is most senators have an apartment in D.C. He used to take Amtrak home when he was in the Senate every day to uh, to spend uh, spend the night at his home in Delaware. That's amazing when you so think he about got it. out. All right, so uh, we can't. I can't let you go without bringing up the whole thing with Kathy Griffin, and uh, she did a, attempted a comedic video in which she had a severed head that appeared to be like uh, that of Donald Trump. Uh, of course, outrage uh, after this um, and, you know, eventually released from CNN. Uh, people on both sides have, have commented on this. Um, you know, it, it seems it, it seems, Michael, we live in a land of extremes and it doesn't matter what side you are on. It seems that those extremes are getting all of the publicity. What, what is your comment on this? What are your thoughts? The one thing I'll say is we've seen it uh, recently in Canada with uh, Jonathan Kay, and I think that was all very unfortunate, uh, what, what happened with him. But usually when we see the, the outrage machine attack someone who makes makes an off-color joke, it's usually someone on the right right side of the political spectrum who's uh, the one being attacked. So from that perspective, it's nice to see Kathy Griffin being held to the same account that Jonathan Kay and others uh, often are. But, you know... It wasn't funny what she did. I, I've never been a fan of hers. This is a woman, remember, we only really know who she is because she had a guest role on Seinfeld for a few episodes where she was the unlikable, unfunny uh, comedian. And she's really been typecast in that role since then. But so it is nice to see someone on the left being held to the same standards someone on the right would be. But it's like we've all lost our minds with this. Like, you know, comedians should make jokes. Uh, columnists should be thought-provoking. And when we get too offended to allow that to happen, I'm really concerned. Uh, you talk about losing our minds. Is this the pendulum swinging back? Does it give you some sort of faith in humanity that we have reacted this way as opposed to seen more of it? No, I want I want people to uh, people can make jokes, and I want people to either say that's funny or that's really stupid. I don't like that comedian. I'm not going to buy her album. I'm not going to buy tickets to her show. But enough of this, you know. Everyone needs to disassociate themselves with someone who made a joke. I don't like. Yeah, I hear you. And again, there we go back to, to uh, extremes. What about uh, the tweeting? Why has that not subsided? It seemed to subside when he was overseas, but why not? You know, even back here. And then of course the the Kofifi thing. 
Well, he must have been worried about the uh, data roaming when he was overseas, which is strange for a uh, <laughs> you know, multi-billionaire. But uh, it's too much, you know. But this is a guy; he's not going to give it up. Uh, a lot of uh, you know, if you look at the more traditional route of politicians, Lindsey Graham had a flip phone when he was running for president, and he didn't use email because he didn't want to get into the trouble that someone like Hillary Clinton did. So a lot of politicians insulate themselves from this. Donald Trump was used to being a celebrity businessman; he didn't have to play by rules. He didn't have to worry about access to information requests. So now he's uh, he's operating under these uh, you know the the same standards he governed himself as a celebrity businessman now as a president it's what's more concerning than the tweets and the tweets are both amusing and concerning but what's more concerning than that is that he's giving world leaders his personal cell phone number uh, a cell phone that can easily be accessed and i'm sure the russians are listening into his conversation with justin trudeau who apparently is the only world leader to have taken him up and called him on that number uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, with him using and giving out his personal cell phone number, is that the same as the Hillary personal email thing? Um, you know, it, 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 that, that's an interesting point. I think the uh, the main problem, so from the security perspective, yes. From the, the legal perspective of uh, archiving records, uh, probably not. Uh, Hillary Clinton's State Department records had to be, uh, they were, they were proper property of the government because anyone should be able to access them. Phone obviously works different than email. So from a security perspective, definitely not sure on the, uh, the archival uh, features. Uh, getting back to uh, the, the Paris uh, uh, Climate Agreement, will other people follow suit? Will other countries follow suit and, and follow America, or is it the rest of the world against the U.S. on this? Well, it will be interesting. I mean, Canada is obviously the one that has to be most aligned with the United States, both politically and for trade and and because of our common market. So that will be the most interesting. I don't think you'll see much change in Europe because of something Donald Trump does. Uh can he change his mind on this? Can he say, uh, instead of coming out today and saying, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to scrap the whole thing, can he say, I'm going to keep it, but I'm going to put my, make my mark, I'm going to put my adjustments on it? Look, that's quite possible. If Ivanka saw something that really upset her, like with Syria, Donald Trump might completely flip on policy. I'm glad he did in that case. I think Ivanka's intervention and getting him to take action on Assad was a very good thing for the world. Uh, so who knows where, you know, she's, she's a liberal, she's a Democrat. She donated the maximum uh, allowable amount to uh, Senator Cory Booker, a liberal Democrat. So uh, if she interferes, there's no one he listens to more than Ivanka Trump. Uh, all bets are off, I suppose. Uh, how long before there's uh, conflict within the family on these disagreements? If he, you know, I mean, the fact that he's brought them all into his inner circle, I mean, can he shut them out too? Look, I think it, it's interesting because you have, you know, uh, the, the the older sons are actually conservative Republicans, aggressive business types. They're they're your traditional Republicans, and Ivanka's a moderate uh, to left leaning Democrat, uh, and, and Jared Kushner, I think, is probably just very even keeled and calculating. So uh, there's a struggle there, but I think the one thing that uh, binds them is loyalty and love to their father. No one can doubt that uh, he loves them and they love him, and you'll never see them. Uh, fight in public would be my guess. Mm. Michael Diamond has been with us, Principal Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto, a conservative political pundit. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Principal, Alyssa PR Communications, uh, and talk about uh, well, talk about various things. Uh, but certainly she's going to talk about uh, Kathy Griffin and uh, her attempt at comedy and 
where this leaves us in the giant discussion of one extreme to the other. Alyssa Freeman is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott, and how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You know, I didn't jump at this first at first. Uh, you know, I thought, ah, here we go again. And plus, I'm not a real Kathy Griffin fan. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, to me, this just appears that uh, the idea is she somehow confused a comedy with shock and awe. And, you know, in lieu of comedy, we're getting that. It almost reminds me of the early days of Howard Stern. I love Howard Stern. I'm a big fan now. So but, am I. So. But, but the early days, he, he would just do anything just to press people's buttons without much maturity in it. That's what I think I'm seeing here. Is this just one of the worst PR situations you've ever seen? You know what? Comedy is a totally different realm. And in comedy, she said herself, in, this is not a defense, this is just sort of an overview. She said herself, you know, in comedy, we move the line, and then we cross it. And sometimes we move it a little bit farther, and we cross it. If you listen to Stern now, he's honestly no different than he was when he was on mainstream radio. The only difference is, is now he gives uh, the more in-depth platform, um, in, um, interviews as a result of his platform. So he really hasn't changed. And, you know, it's interesting. Jim I think Carey, he's matured. Don't you? Don't you think he's matured over time? Uh, he has matured. but you I know, mean, you know, he just he, he, doesn't, he doesn't sit there and fart just so he can smell it. You well, know what I mean? I mean, let's be what? serious. Yeah, he does. If you do listen in between the interviews is when I turn it off, especially if my kid's in the car. I don't care if she's 17. <laughs> We're not listening to that. And, and I can't listen to it either. So, no, none of that has changed. It's just that his line has become acceptable on a medium where you need to pay to hear it. Yeah. All right? This, you know, Twitter is a medium, uh, a free-for-all, uh, for one and for all. Anybody can look at it. You don't need to join. You need to pay. You can just click on it and see what's going on. And the problem with Twitter, and we've discussed this before, is that somebody has a thought in their head and then they put it down. Or somebody sees a, an article and they retweet it, but do they read the article? Nine times out of ten, no. So it's one of these things that, you know, gee, this was a really great idea. Oh, maybe it wasn't. You know, listen, we all think of ideas that we don't exactly think all the way through. And this, unfortunately, was one of them. And what was interesting is when I was researching this topic before I came on was that Jim Carrey actually came to uh, Kathy Griffin's defense. And you, what he said was, is that, you know, it's up to comics to tell the truth. And if we do that in a way that disturbs people, then we're doing our job. Now, you know, it's very interesting. The skewering of Don, Donald Trump happens every night, every, mm -hmm. every night of the week, with the exception of Saturday and Sunday, because that's when late night t you know, sh TV show hosts are not on. You know, Seth Meyers, you ever watch him? Mm -hmm. He is particularly articulate. Stephen Paul Colbert. He's Stephen yeah, Colbert. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel has become the voice of, you know, um, equal health care because of his yeah. uh, own situation. Yeah. So they all take on Trump, no holds barred. And then there was a lot of acceptability on how you could skewer him because in, in many cases he often acts like a or makes decisions uh, that are quite ridiculous in my opinion, and obviously in a lot of late-night TV uh, host opinion. Now, what Kathy Griffin did was like she built on this narrative. So this is an existing narrative of making Donald Trump or skewering Donald Trump. And then she built on that, and it was more of like, listen, you can imagine how it happened. Uh, you know, gee, what if we... 
And this is sort of a play on ISIS. You know how they hold up severed heads of the people that they kill randomly. And she sort of turned that table, which is a very gruesome narrative to begin with, and turned that table and and sort of uh, Americanized it using uh, Donald Trump as the foil for this. And that was even too much. You know, there's a certain tolerable level, but when you enter the realm of the gruesome, then you have likely crossed that line, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, and, and you know, and, and plus, you know, again, this just reminds me of little kids. It reminds me of a kid who keeps pushing the limits to get people's attention, and then when it doesn't work, just keeps taking it one step too far. Um, I go back to extremes. Is she being as extreme as some may feel he is? Uh, is she being just as bad as him? by exploiting just like he is, even though that's her job as a comedian. You know, I think it was the execution. You know, like, no look at, you, you look at, like, <laughs> El, you look, yeah, really, you look at Alec Baldwin and what he's done. Yeah. And people are, and it's very close to the edge. A lot of the stuff that SNL's been doing is very close well, to the edge. But it's still, but it, Stephen Colbert. But it's still been tolerable. Well, you know, when he went on that profane rant yeah, on what yeah. he thought about Trump. Yes, and, and got there was away a with it. Hashtag, you know, by those, his, you know, Trump supporters of hashtag fire Colbert. You know, it had sort of a, a brief sputtering in the spotlight, and then it quickly sputtered away. You know, even that, and look what he said. Yeah. Look what he said. So why that is she being chastised the way she is? And he, well, he was too, but he, he certainly came out smelling like roses. She is not. Well, you know what? He did apologize. He quasi-apologized. And he said, it's not as if I, this what I don't think. I'm just, I think there were different ways that I could have put my, you know, my point of view. You know, with hers, it was, you know, she is a different type of, she doesn't have a late night talk show platform. You know, her background or where she comes from is not necessarily politically motivated. You know, her com- her co- her co- um, comedy, excuse me, uh, sort of runs the gamut, just not in politics, but it's mm-hmm. observational about a number of things. You know, when you look at a Colbert, a Colbert, we kind of expect that from him. When you look at a Seth Meyers, we kind of expect those type of rants. And they're done in sort of very quasi-scholarly and intellectual ways. And this was just a bad gag. And, you know, her apology is very interesting. You know, you look at uh, Kathy Griffin, and she doesn't appear anywhere unless she's completely made yeah, up. Yeah, I noticed that right away. And then you look at this Twitter apology, and it came out fast. So kudos for her for thinking, oh, oh, you know, yep. this was, you know, reaction is swift. Um, I'll take it down quickly. Not that it's ever going to come down. Yeah. But I'll take it down very quickly, and I'll apologize. And she pre- and she presented it's almost a manufactured um, apology where she presented herself in a very stripped-down fashion, hmm. hair completely undone, no makeup, um, bad lighting. So not only did she want to sound apologetic, but she also wanted to look apologetic and not do it in her regular glam way. So you know, people may have also taken exception to that. Um. The fact that, like, well, I was going to say, if any other comedian had done this, would it have been accepted differently? But I'm not sure any other comedian would have done this, or maybe they would have. I don't know. The fact that many may not consider her that funny, she's sort of, a, a, a you know, in, on the C-list of comedians and such. The fact that she isn't as successful, perhaps, as she wants to be, and it appears like she's reaching for something, 
Does yeah, that play you know into what? this? That, that's actually a really, really good point. Uh, I think you make a lot of good points, Scott. So let's just, you know. Thank you, Alyssa. <laughs> but, but and that's and that's exactly why I have you on all the well, time, there. just so you can <laughs> pat me on the back. Somebody's got to do it. I know. You know there you go. I mean, like we are in a clickbait society. So even when I want to write a press release for a client, and I'm going to think of a great title that will cause a reporter or a producer to stop and look. And it's just sort of shy of clickbait because you want people to pay attention. And there isn't a media outlet right now who doesn't write their headlines in a way that will attract clicks, i.e. attention. Sure. All right. So we're always looking at ways to do that. When, uh, you know, Colbert wanted to, to, you know, create stir for himself, you know, he went on his rants. Um, you know, when Seth Meyer changed his format so he would be more of this old Saturday Night Live, you know, at the, at the news desk, weekend update. Mm-hmm. So he created his own format to give himself an appropriate platform. So really, where is, you know, Kathy Griffin's platform? She doesn't really have anything steady other than maybe perhaps a YouTube channel that she owns and, and the uh, appearances that she makes throughout the year. So her platform is not a steady one. So in order to attract attention to yourself, you sort of think of these things that will be breakthrough. We all talk about breaking through the clutter. And believe me, there's a lot of clutter on every, any given oh, day. Yeah. You know, as someone who's a communicator and for my clients, the one thing that you do is that when you come out with an announcement, you look for a clear point in the calendar or a clear time of day even in the calendar, but you never know what's going to happen that day. Mm-hmm. And if it's too much or you're coming up against too big of a story, you just cut bait. So in this case, you know, she really wanted to push that envelope. And she said it herself, as a comedian and even as myself, I push the line. Mm-hmm. And then I push it again, and then I cross over it. And this was, you know, a big no-no. Now, you can look at this like, listen, reaction was swift. She lost her gig with Anderson Cooper, who even had to say, listen, this even crossed the line for me. And Anderson Cooper has not been an angel when it comes to Trump either. Mm-hmm. He was interviewing Kellyanne Conway. She said something, and he said it on TV, you know, on the split screen, you know, total full frontal eye roll. Yeah. Did not apologize for that. Yeah. And then there was um, a time when he was uh, interviewing somebody and uh, he made a particularly uh, crude remark that, um, actually, I'm looking for it here, but I can't, I, I don't want to misquote it. And he had to apologize for that. So, you know, th- this whole sort of ridicule with Trump has, it's not that it's reaching a crescendo, it will always be at a very high volume, but, you know, people who are commentators, and that depends whether you are a news commentator or uh, a late-night talk show host or a political commentator, people are now, hopefully, going to think twice before they decide they are going to do something extreme to break through the clutter. That's my next question. How does this change the discussion? Mm-hmm. How I mean, even Melania spoke up about this. She said that, you know, Baron, the son, was upset. And, and I mean, you know, anybody that has kids can understand that, whether you like the man or you don't like the man or his politics. Um, this seems to have crossed those boundaries. Are you surprised that this got the reaction it did, considering how many people dislike Trump? Well, I think so, because it was just, it was gruesome. And it was uh, sort of a reflection of what ISIS does. So when you take an ISIS narrative and you Americanize it, there's just no way out of that. Nothing, nothing good is going to come of that. And that's what got people up in arms. 
that's where the line was crossed. If it wasn't an ISIS narrative and she still held up a severed head of Donald Trump, I still don't think it would have received any sort of acclaim or any sort of applause. But because, you know, ISIS, an arch enemy causing chaos throughout the world, there is nothing good to be said about that group. And then you take that narrative and bring it back, you know, home, not going to happen, not going to work. But it, it certainly does, um, sir, it will serve, Scott, it will serve as a reminder for commentators of politics, mm-hmm. whether it's supposed to be funny or serious. It will definitely serve as a reminder for people to check themselves or to have others check themselves as to whether they're going too far. I mean, listen, you know, you're, you're, you know, Chorus Radio has it, Toronto Star has it, uh, Tour Star has it. They all have legal, and they all have ombudsman, uh, ombudsman, and they all have public editors. And those stories that come even a little titch close to that line, they're all, all run through legal. And so there are a lot of checks and balances that the media themselves have in place to help prevent this doesn't always work but 90 percent of the time it does work i try every day you try every day you just don't want that call from head office (laughs) so uh, but you know when you're a comedian you don't have those checks and balances you only have what you what you want what people know you for so i guess we now know where the line is she's pointed it out for us yes she has with the big Highlighter. Does this change anything moving forward on those late night shows, whether it's SNL or or any of the other shows? No. Um, They'll just know how far they can go. And I think that every week you and, and listen, you know, SNL did come very close to the line where they when they portrayed Kellyanne Conway as yeah. a, a fatal attraction esque. That was person. about as close as you could get to this. I even felt uncomfortable. Yeah, I did too. It. When I saw I it, and I thought, oh, she's supposed to be going close in a fatal attraction, and yeah, I don't know. And and, yeah. and you know, the other point too that we have to look at is that. This type of commentary, when it becomes too extreme, it only goes to, um, you know, flame the fires, you know, of of the actual conflict going on between, you know, let's call them red and blue Americans. You know, when when you talk like this, you almost give permission for others to talk like that, too. And is that what we really want to do? And I mean, as Alec Baldwin commented on doing Trump, he, you know, and him pulling back from it, it, it he's, he thinks it's not funny anymore because it's become real life. Well, you know, he did say he was going to pull back and he did, but then he also appeared a few weeks later on one of the things, on one of the episodes. But I think it was like something like the last episode of the season. Right. And, you know, what the Trump presidency has done is sort of, you know, given new life to, to some of these shows and to some of these commentators who have been able to capitalize on what's going on in Washington, which has helped provide a very, you know, albeit skewed uh, point of view. Does this create sympathy for Trump? Mm, among his supporters, yes. Uh, you know, there are people from both sides of the aisle who decried this action by Kathy Griffin and said it had gone too far, calling it vile and gruesome. And, you know, they're not wrong. You know, what she does doesn't sort of help that um, opposition of media or, or op- voices of opposition, to be quite honest. Trump supporters will always be there. And remember, you know, Trump is talking to three states in the union, the three states that put him over, okay? He's talking to Wisconsin dairy farmers. He's talking to the automotive industry um, in uh, Michigan and also farming in Michigan and in Coal miners. And, and, and in Pennsylvania. So, you know, he won that presidency, you know, I heard by 83,000 votes in the electrical, in the electrical, the electoral college. 
so, you know, any anything in everything that he says is geared towards those supporters. And what his supporters think, no matter what he does, no matter what he does, no matter how ridiculous, even if he pushes a world leader out of the way so he can be in the front of, uh, of the line of the picture at the G7, it's they don't care. Yeah. Oh, they're just picking on him. Oh, they're just picking on him. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, Principal Alyssa PR Communications, uh, talking about the episode with Kathy Griffin and uh, the Donald Trump lookalike severed head. Uh, I don't think I've ever said that before. All oh. right, Alyssa, thank you very much <laughs> once again. <laughs> exactly. Take care. Have a good one. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.